That brings us to the next section. The Father's Pursuit of Sinners. In this section, Jesus told three parables in order to explain why he ate with sinners and the importance and the value these people have in Yahweh's eyes. The point is that they, and especially the disciples, should share this attitude toward the sinner. Each parable builds on the previous one, where each thing that was lost is more valuable than the last. The responses heaven shows that these parables, the response in heaven shows that these parables are fundamentally about Yahweh. Very important for you to understand. This is not the parable of the lost coin. This is not the parable of the lost sheep. This is not the parable of the prodigal son. This is the parable of the woman who dropped everything to look for it, of the man who sought the sheep, of the compassionate father who awaited and forgave his son. The focus is not on the thing that is lost, even though in the third parable the son dominates the narrative. The focus is on the one who does the searching and the finding. And that all climaxes in the parable of the prodigal son. And the focus, I think this should be retitled, the parable of the compassionate father. That's the main focus. So chapter 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear him. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now remember, most of Jesus' parables center on a question or accusation of the audience or a question that he poses based on what he knows the audience is thinking. So Jesus told him this parable, Which one of you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, would not leave the ninety-nine an open pasture and go look for the one that is lost until he finds it? Then the one who found it, he places it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Returning home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and telling them, tells them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who have no need to repent. The first one is a parable of sheep. He has a hundred. And, and he, one gets lost. And so he emphasizes the value of this one sheep by the willingness to leave the other. Now, the likelihood is he's leaving the other ones and the caretakers of other shepherds. But he is willing to leave them because most people think, well, think about it. If you have 100 pennies and you lost a penny, you're like, I don't know. That's not really worth like searching everywhere to find that one penny. Like I have, a, I have 99 of them other. Maybe even $100 bills and you lose $1 bill and time is pressed. You'd be like, ah, that kind of stinks. But I still have $99 and $1 bills are kind of easy to come by, relatively speaking, in our culture. But what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 no. That one is so important that it's willing to leave. Now, granted, a sheep is more valuable than $1 bill, but that's the idea that this sheep is lost. Now, sheep often are notorious for getting like disoriented, confused, and like wandering off. This is actually a very common thing. Like when he starts talking about this, they're like, oh, yeah, I've been there, or my brother who's a shepherd's told me about this. So this is a very common thing. And he says, but all shepherds go for them. They care about every sheep so much that they're willing to search 
over and over for them. And this is costly, depending on how long it takes them or how the, have you seen that video on the internet, that sheep that's caught in a hole and that they, oh, if you want to know why Jesus compares us to sheep, I know this is a segue, but I don't care. Google sheep stuck in crevice or crack or, or hole in the ground or something like that. There's this little kid trying to pull the sheep out that's stuck in it. And he finally pulls the sheep out and the sheep starts running and just leaps into the air like this majestic, I'm free, leap, and just goes right back into the crack again and gets stuck. <laughs> And it's like, and I know it kind of ruined it telling you, but it's still so funny to watch. I could watch it over and over again. This is why Jesus compares this to sheep, okay? And so they're frustrating as they shepherd this kid. God bless this kid. This kid's working hard because it's important to him. And then after all that, it just goes wham, right back in. And that kid's got to go through it all again. They're notorious for being nerve-wracking and trying to help them and get them back as they wander off. And they, most likely they're getting stuck in things and you have to get them back. And they're notorious for just getting confused and discombobulated and going off and getting into trouble. But he's saying this is worth it. Every sheep is worth it. The emphasis of how much they're worth it is in the fact that it says, all of heaven rejoice. Just one person repenting brings a rejoicing of this heavenly angelic community. That shows you how God really reviews the loss. Or of what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search thoroughly until she finds it. Then when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. So he goes on. And this woman, now she's not leaving other things to go for the one. Now she's lost a coin. This is equivalent of 10 days wages. This is almost two weeks of your salary that you've lost. And she is going to make sure, like, I've lost money before, like, I've hidden it in a certain way and then like realize, oh crap, I forget where I hid it. What book did I put that in or whatever? And then you, you search, right? You search and you search and you pull up. And you're like, I know I've never put anything in couch cushions, but I'm still ripping these couch cushions up, right? Because I'm desperate. I hid the keys to the, our safe somewhere. And then we only go to our safe like one time a year for like legal documents, right? It's more of a fireproof safe than it is protecting it from burglars kind of safe. I hid the key and I hid it so well I couldn't remember. And I was search and search and search. And then finally my wife was like, hey, let's pray about it. Yeah, you're right. And we prayed. And I kid you not, the very next place I went to is where the key was. That's a little side note, but like God has done that multiple times. But you search because this is of great value. Those legal documents, like I need those. And so God is saying this is the intent that God puts into people. And he's willing to go into every nook and cranny of creation to pull you out of the grips of hell and into the bosom of Christ. And then she invites everybody. Now it's not just people in heaven rejoicing. Now it's everybody's being invited and she's throwing a party as a result of it. Then the value increases even more. 
Then Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. And after a few days, the younger son gathered together all that he had and left on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. And after he had spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country, and he began to do to be in need. So he went and worked for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to eat the carob pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have food enough to spare? But here I am dying from hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him and his heart went out to him. And he ran and hugged his son and kissed him. Then his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I have I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Hurry, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put in a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his slaves and asked, What is happening? The slave replied, Your brother has returned, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he got his son back safe and sound. But the older son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and appealed to him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have worked like a slave for you, and I never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me any even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when his son of yours came back, who has devoured your assets and with prostitutes and killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and everything that belongs to me is yours. It was appropriate, appropriate to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost and he is found. The father has two sons. He's a wealthy son. The younger son basically says, I wish you were dead. I want everything I would have gotten from you if you were dead, and it's mine now. I don't care about you. This would have been, if even today, like estates and inheritances are not a big deal. Like, it is a big deal when people die and a lot of kids fight over them and are willing to, like, ruin their relationships over it. But we don't see it as, we think of it today as more of, like, money and having things. In the ancient world, this is more about future stability because remember the inheritance is land and the ancient world land is your home it's your checking account it's your grocery store it's your retirement plan it, it's it's your stability it's it's so much more than just having land to build a house on and so what he's basically saying is i wish you were dead and i want everything that is yours Because I want to live off of it. Which means if I take everything that is mine, it's going to affect your lifestyle and your life in a negative way because you need land for life. This is a very black sheep kind of a son. 
is basically saying, screw you, forget you, dad. I wish you were dead. I want as yours. I'm going on my own. I can do better without you. I can do better with what you have than what you have done. That's the idea. And this culture, that would have been, an inc- I mean, that's humiliating and disrespectful and shaming in any culture. But in this culture, this would have even ruined the father to a certain degree in the eyes of all these people who are keeping um, social status records and everything. Like, this is what happened to you. What, this is what your son did to you. And there's a certain shame found. And then I'm not giving my son this inheritance and he's going to continue my name and my line, so to speak. He has rejected me and gone off and done his own. And so the son leaves. But the father, he allows it to happen. He divides it and he gives it to him. Because God often gives us what we want. Because remember, sometimes the worst thing that God could ever do is give you what you want. That's his own judgment. So he divides and he gives it to him. After a few days, the younger son gathered together all that he had and left on a journey to his country. Now this is significant too, because this is an Israelite family. So he's not just walking away from his father, he's walking away from everything. He's leaving the land. And remember in the first testament, we made the point that there are no blessings of God outside the promised land. That's exile. And whenever you move out of the land, you're walking away from God. So the son is rejecting everything that this father is, that he's rejecting the, the, nation, the, the, the country, he's rejecting the religion, he's rejecting God, he's rejecting the culture. I can do better than everybody has ever done. And there he squandered his wealth with a wild, wild lifestyle. Now, this is drugs, prostitution, alcohol, everything you can possibly think that's bad, and it's made very clear by the older brothers saying that's what he did. Not only did he humiliate and shame and disrespect and dishonor socially his father and even relationally, but then he just messed it all up. He bombed and left a greasy stain on the pavement. And so this is a horrible, and this would be shaming even more to the father because now the father is a failure at discipling his kid. Now that's not true, but that's how people are going to view it. You couldn't even raise a kid that can handle this more than just a few days. Then after he had spent everything, a severe famine took the place in the country. Now this is the idea that this kid is completely not wise. He could not prepare for the future. Everything that his father had that could protect him and take care of him when the famine came, he blew. And so the idea is God has provided Israel with so much to take care of them of any suffering any trial that would come their way if they just rest in him. But Israel wants to squander it all and waste it on worldly things so that when life trials and struggles and suffering come, they're not prepared to handle it because they're not in Christ anymore or they're not in God anymore. So he went out and worked for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. Now this makes it very clear that it's the Gentile people. So now what's even worse is where Israel is supposed to be the head of all the nations, guiding them towards God and ruling over them with godliness. Now the Jew is serving the Gentiles. And now he's no longer kosher. He's completely outside the law. But he's so desperate to survive, the law means nothing to him anymore. And he's eating the things that even pigs are eating. The most lowly, unclean, filthy animals are eating in a Jewish mindset 
And this kid has been reduced to that, in on his hands and knees in the filth of the world and absolute desperation. This is like Israel in exile. You, I gave you everything, and you rejected me, and now you're going into exile where you have nothing. But then he came to his senses. Now this is important. This is count the cost. No one decides to build a tower without first figuring out whether they can. No one goes into battle without. So the kid has had a lot of time to think. This is like Samson grinding grain blind with a lot of time to think. Except this kid is going to do better than Samson. Where Samson just wants revenge for his eyes, but at least he's trusting in God. But this kid comes to the sense that he realizes life was better with my father. My father could actually handle trials. My father was able to get through trials and suffering and famine. My father took care of me. When I'm on my own, building my own kingdom, I have failed miserably. And though being a part of my father's house involves rules, it involves sacrifices, it involves work, his kingdom that he built is way better than any kingdom that I could have ever built. And that's the gospel, that salvation and the kingdom will not come by my own works, but by through the work of God. And so he comes to the senses and he realizes that this plane has crashed and burned, and my father has a parachute, and I have not. I want to go back. But there's no way my father would accept me after everything I've done to him. But even his workers have a better life than what I have now. So I will grovel at his feet in a social status kind of a way to try to earn social points back. I will do it publicly so that all of his neighbors see it and they will see his honor get restored back. Therefore, he'll be more likely to receive me and accept me. I will try to lift my father's honor back up in his own eyes and the eyes of his community as I do everything I can, groveling, humiliating myself and dishonoring myself to increase his social status so that he will say, yeah, my points have increased enough that I will take my son back to be a worker because my points have increased that much. Now, we know the father's not thinking like that way, but that's the way they think in the culture. And so he goes back, and he, he's, how am I going to say this? Rewording his sentence over and over again. So it's the most convincing that it could possibly be. Because even then, he's still thinking works-oriented to a certain extent, even though he's still at the mercy of his father. But the father has been looking for him. This would have been socially humiliating. He's supposed to get reprisal on his son. He's supposed to write him off. Everybody in the culture would be like, write him off, disinherit him, never talk to him anymore. You should never have your son. Go to other sons. But instead the father, can. he now humiliates himself publicly and socially. Every day he looks out. And we know what this is like when people keep mourning. I mean, you, we've seen this, right, in movies where kid, people's kids get kidnapped or whatever, and they're gone for like five, ten years, and they keep, like, looking out. In some sense, you totally, like, I, 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 I do not understand what it's like to have a kid that has been kidnapped, but I can sympathize with how horrific that might be and how you can never get over that in any kind of way. But the other sense, you're probably thinking, come on. It's been 20 years and they still haven't come back. You, you're ruining your life. 
And so a lot of people would be looking at be like, stop looking for your son. Come back in. You have an empire to run and a business to run. Like that's where life is at, success and power, not some dumb kid. Stop looking for him. He deserves that. Yet the father publicly does this. Then he sees his son at a distance, and he doesn't even get his son a chance to say anything. And he runs. Now, Jewish fathers, elite Jewish fathers, they don't run for people. They glide. Okay? They glide with pomp and circumstances. And most of the time, they don't go to you. You come to them. And not only that, they don't lift their robes. You have to lift your robes to run. The only time you lift your robes to run is an athletic commit and then war. You, but you do not move through the city with men, women and children looking upon you with all your royal attire. You do not pull up your robe and run because that's what you have to do. It's called girding your loins. He would have to pull it up and stuck it into his belt buckle and then he would have to run and that would expose his legs and everybody would see him running to this ingrate pathetic child and so he is now publicly humiliating himself for his son the son was expected to humiliate himself before the father but the father humiliates himself for the son and he doesn't allow the son to do anything and obviously this is a foreshadowing of Christ who will be stripped naked and nailed to a cross, humiliated for us, rather than expecting us to be humiliated for him in the kingdom of God. And so he runs to him, and he's overjoyed. There's no reprisal. There's no, I told you so. If you would only listen to me. He celebrates. He kisses him. And then he takes the fattened calf, the ox, and he's sacrificed. Now, this is the one that would have been saved for like Passover or, or uh, the Day of Atonement sacrifice. But, most, but this is a fellowship offering. Remember in Leviticus God, 1 through 6, God lays out the six different sacrifices. And in there, one of them is a fellowship offering. And the fellowship offering is anytime that there was something amazing that God did in your life, and you wanted to give thanks to God for doing this, you would take an ox if you're wealthy, a lamb if you weren't, and you would take it to the altar. The priests would sacrifice it. They would take the right breast and the right thigh and, and the hip, and they would take that home and eat it. And then you would, they would burn the fat and the intestines on the altar. And then you would take the rest home, and you would invite people over, and you would throw a great banquet like Thanksgiving, and you would tell everybody about the amazing thing that God did. And so the father takes the Day of Atonement ox for the atonement of his sins of ignorance and he sacrifices it as a fellowship offering to tell everybody in the community of the amazing thing that his son was once lost and is now found. It is no longer a sacrifice for his own sins. It's a sacrifice, a celebration for the lost coming in to the family once again. And so this shows you the great love of the Father and the willingness to forgive and overlook because he's just so happy to see his son. But now there's the other son. Neither son is right because the other son is the dutiful son, the one that stayed behind and did everything right. They are the behaviorist ones. I behaved exactly the way that you wanted me, Father. I did exactly what you expected. 
In fact, what is worse, just as bad as the previous son, this son views himself as a slave to the father. Now, you might be willing to think, well, if he views himself as a slave to the father, then maybe the father really has been treating him as a slave. But after what you've just seen the father do for the other son, you realize that's not the character of the father. The father has never communicated the idea that his son is a slave ever, or that he's overworked him, or that he just expects him to behave in a certain way and get in line. He has never communicated that, but the kid is more of a product of the culture than he is the father. Both are. The first kid has become more of a product of the culture, the rebellion, that follow your heart, to do whatever you want, rather than the father. And the second son is more of a product of the culture, the legalism and the expectation, the social status. Neither one of them have been influenced by the father. They've been influenced by the culture. And so this kid says, I am your slave. I have worked for you. I have done, behaved and done everything I should. I should have all this stuff. I deserve it. First son said, I don't like you, Dad. I want it. I don't deserve it. I just want it. The second son says, I resent you, Dad, for treating me like a slave, even though you haven't. I deserve it. Both sons are wrong. Both sons are wrong. This one did not behave correctly. We've all been keeping tallies on him, and he's not right. He has no place in the kingdom of God. But then the father responds to him in the exact same way, the same spirit. Not the exact same words, but he, with the same spirit. Where before he's, he's given everything to his first son, and then when his son comes back, he's willing to sacrifice an ox and throw a great banquet for him. Like, what is mine is yours, because I love you. The father responds in the same way to the second son. But all of this has always been yours. I didn't expect you to work for your meals. I didn't expect you to work for your Christmas gifts. I gave these things to you because I loved you. And we work because this is what good character is. We don't work because we are expected to. We don't work to get. We work because that's godliness. That's character. It's always been yours. It is yours. And his answer is the same to both sons. His answer is the same to both sons. You do not obey out of duty. You serve because you love. You want to be a part of it. Now, yes, God does expect us to obey. God does want that. But that shouldn't be our to get. We don't obey because, wow, he's demanding that I do this. Or if I don't obey, then I'll get punished. Or if I obey, I'll get a reward. Or this is just, I don't want to be socially shamed for not obeying. You obey because you love. Who are these? The first son is the Gentiles, and the second son is the Jews. Now, you're like, wait a minute. When were the Gentiles a part of God? Well, they were. In the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve and his sons, and, and they knew this. We know that the Canaanites at one time worshipped Yahweh and knew this, but they fell apart. This is clear in historical mythology records, not in the Bible. But if you go to their records and you see their mythology, you, they, they describe their god El, Elohim, as very, very much close to Yahweh. So close that it cannot be any other god than Yahweh. It does not look like a pagan god. 
And that's why God punished them the way that he did, because they were like the Jews, and they walked away. And so the Gentiles have walked away, and then God chose the Jews. And the Jews have been with God the entire time, reaping the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant. But now they're walking away and rejecting it. And meanwhile, the Gentiles are coming back, and they're accepting in droves. And so what God is making clear is that all Jews and Gentiles are my kids. They're my children. And all of creation I built for them, they're all in the image of God. They've all been commanded to rule and subdue. I have given all things to them. And in the prophets, they made it very clear that all the nations will come back to God, to his cosmic mountain, and live in the new Jerusalem and the new Garden of Eden. Salvation is for all. And you Jews are behavioralistic and condemning them because they don't act the same way. And you Gentiles are just living up in your sexual morality and your idolatry. But all I really care about is will you repent and come back to me? Because if you repent and give your life to me, I can take care of everything else. I have compassion and love for all, regardless whether you're the dutiful, behavioristic, legalistic kid or the laissez-faire, pleasure-seeking, irresponsible partier. Both of you, this is my kingdom that I built for you and it's your inheritance that my son will restore back to you and the second coming of Jesus Christ and that you can enjoy right now too. This is the parable of the compassionate father who loves the lost and the ones who don't think they're lost so much that he's willing to humiliate himself socially and degrade himself for the sake of their salvation, to give them the kingdom of God. The question is, will you repent, and will you follow, and will you pursue your identity in him? He has done everything else. All he wants you to do is repent.